Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. Today, I'm speaking with a returning guest, Lincoln Mitchell. Lincoln is a writer, a pundit, a journalist, and an adjunct associate professor of political science at Columbia University. He's written several books about democracy, about politics, and about baseball, and today we'll be talking about his latest book, San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, Punk Rock, and a Third Place Baseball Team, which just came out this fall with Rutgers University Press. Welcome back to the New Books Network, Lincoln. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's good to be talking with you this morning. I always like to begin our interviews by hearing just a little bit about the authors themselves. So if you would, just take a second and tell us about your life and your background as a writer and as a political scientist. Okay, well, central to you know, this book is that I, am, I was born in New York. I moved to San Francisco when I was three, and I moved back here to New York as, as a very young adult to go to graduate school. So I'm, my life is really divided between these two cities. And another way I think of it is I spent half my life with my friends out there in California saying, dude, mellow out. And the second half so far with a lot of my friends here asking me why nothing ever seems to stress me out. For the record, things do stress me out. I just don't show the way other New Yorkers show that. But as a writer and and as a political scientist and as a baseball fan, all these things are wrapped up in my identity and all these things come out of this book. I was raised in a pretty political family. My mother was a red diaper baby and San Francisco in the 1970s was a very uh, political place. And I was involved in you know, campaigns and political issues beginning in high school all the way really through the present. And, um, but baseball was always kind of the background music, the, sub, the, the real obsession of my life. So this book, I try to bring them together, but also as part of, of, of a search for some kind of meaning about San Francisco. If you grow up in San Francisco and you meet people all the time who've lived in San Francisco for a few years, but it's a city where it's a city where people go to, not where people are from in the public consciousness. And that's always kind of been on my mind. I remember moving to New York in 1990, moving to the Upper West Side of Manhattan and thinking to myself, you know, in this, at Columbia University where many people come from all over and are suddenly in this progressive liberal environment. And I came to the Upper West Side and said, how did I get to such a right-wing neighborhood? Because San Francisco was, was, had such a progressive politics to it. And, and today, San Francisco remains a kind of an unusual place. You know, when I talk to my New York friends and they talk about gentrification or how fast things are changing, I think to myself, that's nothing compared to what we're experiencing in San Francisco. So it's kind of an intellectual and personal quest to figure out what's going on in the city and how it got to be the way it is. So it sounds like this book comes from a pretty personal place then. Um, with that in mind, can you tell us a little bit more about why you wanted to write a book about this particular place in this particular time in the 1970s and the late 70s specifically? Well, this, this book is really about you know, one year. And, and that year is 1978. And if you lived in San Francisco in the late 70s through the 80s, uh, the events of, late, of, of November of 1978 are this kind of this, this line and this scar across the city that changed everything. And over time, people who aren't from San Francisco, and even people increasingly who are there, don't realize that. To them, it's the assassination of Harvey Milk which martyrs this great civil rights hero, but the effect it has on the city has kind of been forgotten. The real, the real thing I'm referring to now is that in addition to losing a progressive supervisor who was kind of being groomed to potentially be the mayor in a few years, the progressive mayor was killed 
and replaced by a centrist who at that time was you know, a, a two-time failed mayoral candidate whose kind of brand of liberal pro-business centrism was not popular in San Francisco. And because of that, the city changed. But I didn't want to just tell the story about politics because there was so much more going on. And for me, what makes the city the city I love, but also what makes it interesting is all of these other things. And so I chose, I wanted to talk about punk rock because punk rock reinvigorated um, the progressive politics of San Francisco, but also San Francisco has an avant-garde weird place. And growing up in, in San Francisco, and you know, I'm a little young to have gone to punk rock shows in the 70s, but by the early 80s I was going, it was a very, it was our generation, right? Where you, in my, my generation of San Franciscans, you know, you're always being told by people 10 years older that, oh, you missed the summer of love and, you know, too bad you never got to see, you know, the Grateful Dead and Golden Gate Park. But of course, we did get to see the Grateful Dead and Golden Gate Park because they played there in the 90s. But, you know, the punk rock is kind of forgotten, but for us, it was what was happening. It was radical. It was what was interesting. And then, you know, there's being a baseball fan is this kind of all American thing that people don't associate with San Francisco. And at the time, it was, you know, now we think of the Giants, they've won three World Series this, this decade. They have, you know, the most beautiful ballpark in the major leagues, all of that. They're always among the leaders in attendance. But back then, they were this kind of obscure thing that was happening in the southeast corner of the city. Yet, they were a real obsession for many of us. And that 1978 team was what made many people of my generation in San Francisco fall in love with baseball, even though they ended up finishing, you know, in third place and the Dodgers won the pennant again. Well, let's get into the book a little bit. And I know it's sort of a cliche to say, but in this book, the city of San Francisco itself is sort of the main character in the story that you're telling. So if you could, can you give us sort of a bird's eye view of what San Francisco was like a decade or so after the summer of love? Because you described the 70s in the book as almost like a citywide hangover from the heady days of the late 1960s. By 1978, San Francisco had roughly 200,000 fewer people than it had today than it has today, and about 100,000 fewer people, maybe even, you know, maybe even a greater number than that, than the height of its popularity in the early post-war years. So if you've been to San Francisco today, the kind of, the, the earth San Francisco experience today is being stuck in traffic and looking for parking, right? But in the 1970s, it was underpopulated. The economy was very bad. The city had been hemorrhaging jobs in manufacturing, but perhaps more significantly in shipping because San Francisco is a big port. So there was not a lot of economic opportunity. It was a place that you came to because it was San Francisco, so it had a kind of cultural weight to it. You know, if you wanted to try something new or be on the avant garde or start a new band, but you didn't go there to make money. It also was a city that was deeply divided, and that deep division I write about really shows itself most, most first, most on a, in November 1975 in this mayoral election between a candidate who is out front in speaking to LGBT groups, they were called gay groups back then, and saying, you know, I'm with you, I support gay civil rights, I support equality for gay people, and doing the same thing for African Americans, which we now think of the Obama coalition that way. But that was George Moscone in 1975, as well as reaching out to Chicanos and labor and newer San Franciscans. And he narrowly beat a candidate, John Barbagelata, who I tell people, you know, to help them think it through, is kind of a a proto-Rudy Giuliani or Frank Rizzo figure, an angry guy. We're going to reclaim the city. We're going to take it back from these newcomers. We're going to let the old business leadership uh, take back the leadership, you know, continue to run the city, and the city will be run by straight white men. Which, whereas Moscone, the first thing he did when he became mayor was he had 
Well, the first thing he did when he became mayor was desperately try to save the Giants from leaving. But the second thing was he had all the commissioners resign, and he appointed a very, very diverse uh, leadership of the city. So it was a very divided city. There was a lot of crime. The murder and crime rate in San Francisco was higher than in New York in the 70s. So if you think of all those dystopic movies, Escape from the, from the Bronx and all that kind of thing, or Escape from New York, pardon me, you know, San Francisco had a higher crime rate and a higher murder rate. And it had weird crimes, too. You know, it had the zebra killings. It had, uh, you know, gang wars in, in Chinatown. And ultimately, it had Jonestown. So it was a very but, – but I don't want to just paint a depressing picture, right? It was also a lot of fun, you know? There were fun concerts in Golden Gate Park. There were, you know, cool movies. You could go down to Gurley Square and see, you know, jugglers and, and hang out. There were things for kids to do. And so it was a fun city, too. But it was a much rougher edge than, than San Francisco today. And the year begins, um, and the book begins, with the swearing in of several pivotal political figures. Tell us a little bit more about the famous person of Harvey Milk and the somewhat less famous uh, politician of George Moscone. I think I'm pronouncing his name properly there. Um, yeah, Moscone. Well, well, Moscone was sworn in in 76 as mayor. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Sorry about that. Um, well, tell us who these people but, were and why they're so important to understanding the history of the city and the year of 1978 in particular. Well, Harvey Milk, when he was, so Harvey Milk got elected in 1977 in the fall because the city had switched to district elections rather than at large elections. And then it the idea was, let's craft a district where a gay person can win, right? And Harvey Milk had his eye on that district. Harvey Milk had run three times for office before, failed each time, but this was a district he could win. And he, he kind of won in a landslide. He, he, did, he did very well in that election. And Milk was, in my mind, an important face of the new San Francisco. Milk was a gay Jewish man from New York. He had been born in 1929, so it wasn't, he was not a young, particularly young, middle, into middle age by then. He had come with more conservative politics, but gradually moved to the left because it was San Francisco. Uh, he was a small business person, but, but a community leader. And, he, and his small business, which was the camera store in Castro, was kind of a hub of activism. I talked to a number of people who knew him who, who talked about hanging out at his camera store. And, you know, if there was a a cause to be organized around it was a start with Harvey Milk's camera store. And, but, but he also ran for uh, the Board of Supervisors as an out gay man, promising to make gay rights a central part of what he would do on the Board of Supervisors. And that, was, that had not really been done in a major city in America uh, up, up until that time. But Milk also evolved from kind of a gadfly into a pretty smart, hard-nosed uh, urban politician. And on the one hand, that, uh, that made him very effective. He passed two, or well, one important law, and one uh, which was a major gay rights initiative, which, as he said, had teeth in it. But he also passed a law which virtually every American who lives in the city today can appreciate San Francisco in September, a few, years, a few months before Milk was killed, passed a law that Milk had authored forcing dog owners to pick up after their dogs. It was the second city uh, to do that, and I, I discussed that in the book. But he also knew how to play politics. And he learned that you know, over the time he was on the Board of Supervisors, and he was a fast learner. George Moscone was, shared a political vision with Milk of making the city for the neighborhoods. If you go back and listen to Moscone's speeches and you know, campaign literature, the word neighborhoods comes up over and over again. And by neighborhoods, he means it's a, it's a one way of speaking about diversity because there are Latino neighborhoods in San Francisco at the time and Asian neighborhoods and African-American neighborhoods. But he really just means the people. And San Francisco has always been a city of neighborhoods, partially because the hills and the microclimates make the neighborhoods very distinct. And he wanted to take power away from downtown interest and put in the neighborhood. But Moscone was a fascinating character. He was a Italian-American 
grew up in the Cow Hollow Marina District, which is in the northern part of the city, which today are very uh, expensive, kind of yuppie kind of neighborhoods. But back then, well into the 70s, were much more working class Italian neighborhoods. Uh, there were a few Jewish families like mine there, but they were a few Asian families. But the, the largest ethnic group was Italian Americans. He was a single mom, uh, got, uh, went to the elite Jesuit high school in San Francisco called St. Ignatius. Uh, in 1978, the governor of California, the speaker of the assembly, and the mayor of San Francisco were all graduates of that one high school. And so Moscone, and he was an all-city basketball player, and he was a charming, good-looking guy. I mean, I talked to people both who liked him, who were on his side politically, and who weren't, and they all described him. They light up with a smile when they talk about him, just his charm and his political skill. Um, but he, he was able to do something interesting. He was on the Board of Supervisors, then elected to the state senate, where he became the president of the state senate in California. And he married his kind of old San Francisco roots. Nobody had better bona fides as a San Franciscan than George Moscone with progressive politics of the new San Francisco. And that became a very potent political combination that allowed him to win a very close mayoral election. A lesser politician running on that platform or somebody who couldn't you know, go to the Italian neighborhoods and tell them who, you know, and talk about growing up in San Francisco probably couldn't have won. Tell us about San Francisco culturally in this year as well, because you actually open the book with an ending with the Grateful Dead's uh, New Year's Eve 1977 show closing the famous Winterland Ballroom. And as you say in the book, the era of the dead was passing in San Francisco in 1978, and a new musical era was just starting to begin, correct? Well, well that's what one would think, right? I mean, I start with the 77-78 show, and then I end with the 78-79 show, just to put a little, a little symmetry on the book. Of course, the Grateful Dead played well into the 90s, but it wasn't obvious at the time. Right. And, and there was this feeling that that hippie moment was passing. That hippie moment, that, and I'm kind of using that term loosely, but you know, it, was, it was bands like the Jefferson Airplane had become the Jefferson Starship and were no longer interesting. You know, the girl with the faraway eyes is not as good a song as, you know, uh, Three Sisters of a Mile and Ten Seconds Flat or something, or White Rabbit. You know, it had become, and, and, the, and the coverage of that had become, you know, the media... So in kind of music culture, you know, Carlos Santana's 17th guitar solo, you know, uh, Fleetwood Max, kind of this, this arena rock was, was in the mainstream, but it had really had no teeth anymore. It was just big. And punk rock was beginning to pick up some of that energy. But of course, culturally, there was a lot else going on. This was a very diverse city. So, for example, you know, there was still a lot of disco and then kind of soul, which was a, 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 you know, a predecessor of kind of hip hop. So musically, and culturally, there was a lot going on. And it, it remained a city where, you know, in large swaths of the city, it felt like 1950, if you were in Western San Francisco. You know, and then if you were in North Beach, where the punk rock movement was, was centered, it felt very, very different. So it was, it was, San Francisco is always, for those, you know, readers who don't spend a lot of time there, listeners who don't spend a lot of time there, it's always both very small, smaller than you think and larger than you think. And that was the case in 1978 as well. And finally, and I like how you described uh, baseball earlier as, um, as the background music to a lot of your life. I tend to feel the same way about it. So tell us a bit about the background music of San Francisco, the background baseball of San Francisco. What role did the Giants play in the city's culture and in the city's identity more specifically in 1978? Because when I think of late 70s baseball, I don't really think of it as a golden era for Bay Area baseball necessarily. No, it wasn't. And, and to answer that question, you have to go back to the earlier part of the century. San Francisco has a great baseball tradition. And in 1978, it had a great baseball tradition. But in 1978, that great baseball tradition had little to do with the Giants. The San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League had played there through 1957 and were kind of the Yankees of the PCL. Not quite as dominant, but 
during that era, but they were the best team in the PCL. And, and I suppose listeners who are friend who are fans of the, Los Angeles, the old PCL Los Angeles Angels might dispute that, but the Seals were the elite team. And they also had some very, very well-known players on that team. Uh, Tony Lazari, who was a Hall of Fame second baseman uh, for, for, the, for the Yankees, played on that team. Lefty O'Doul played on that team and then managed that team and was really the, 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 kind of the most famous and the person most identified with the Seals. And then three brothers from the North Beach section of town, just east of where George Moscone grew up, all played on the Seals at various times, Vince Dom and Joe DiMaggio. So they had very famous players. And when the Giants came there in 1958, they were not immediately embraced. Even though they were a good team, even though Willie Mays was their fielder, they were not immediately embraced by San Franciscans who were still loved the Seals. And the Giants throughout the 60s underperformed. They came within one run of winning the 62 World Series, but Willie McCovey lined out to Bobby Richardson with a tying and winning runs on base. And they didn't win, and they didn't make it back to the World Series in the rest of the 60s. And by the midst, it appeared between 71 and 73, they traded or sold or lost Gaylord Perry, Juan Marichal, Willie McCovey, and Willie Mays. And particularly Willie Mays, that kind of, that kind of took the heart out of the team. And by the mid-70s, there's the sense of how does the, what is the identity of the Giants without Willie Mays? And then Horace Stoneham, whose family had owned the family, had owned the team since the 30s, basically runs out of money. The reason Willie Mays was sold to the Mets was he needed money. George Stoneham needed money to make payroll. So the team is in, is in shambles. They're, they're, they're drawing, you know, 600,000, 700,000 fans on a good, on a, in a good year in the mid-70s. And which, which even by the standards of that time was, was quite terrible. And in January, in, in late 75, 76, they are sold to the Labatt Brewing, a consortium led by the Labatt Brewing Company, which of course is a Canadian company, to move to Toronto. And in January 1976, the Toronto papers are printing, you know, welcome Giants, and here's the Giants lineup, and you know, where will they finish in the National League East, and all of that. George Moscone, who became mayor in January 76, and of course you can't lose your baseball team in your first month as mayor, Scrambles, a, a prominent local business person named Bob Lurie agrees to buy the team or at least put half the money down and he ends up within a year having to pay buy the whole team. And he keeps the team in San Francisco, but they're terrible. And they're not drawing fans. And going into January of 1978, there was still a feeling that this might be their last year in San Francisco. And the me- media coverage is all about, will they be moving to Denver? Will the A's be moving to Denver? Will the A's move to Denver and the Giants split their time between Oakland and San Francisco? Well, one of these teams moved to Florida. I mean, it was just, there was no sense of certainty around it. And then this extraordinary thing happened. And I mean, the Giants in, in early 1978 spring training, as you know, all of, if you remember in the 76, 77 period, the Oakland A's were losing all their great players from the championship era. The one truly great player left is Vita Blue. And spring training of 1978 the Yankees, or the Giants get Vita Blue in a trade for, you know, seven fringe guys who might or might not have made the team, none of whom went on to a serious big league career. And Blue brought some energy uh, to a young team that was filled, to a team that was filled with either young players just hitting their, their value. You know, Willie McCovey was back on the team to lend the team uh, a certain name recognition in San Francisco, but, but he had a great year in 77 by 70. It wasn't good. But there were a lot of guys on that Giants team who today we would think of as charter members of the Hall of Very Good. You know, Daryl Evans, Bill Madlock, Jack Clark, Vita Blue. You know, John Montefusco was still good back then. 
and it wasn't a great team. I mean, they were never, you know, they, they ended up finishing six and a half games back, but they were in first place for three months in the middle of the summer, and it absolutely captivated the city. It was the first good post-Willie Mays team. They drew 1.7 million fans, the most of any team in Giants history, going back to the New York days, except for 1960, which is when they opened Candlestick Park. So it absolutely captivates the city. People are talking about the Giants. That's the story of San Francisco in 1978, if the year had ended on October 31st, 1978, which, of course, it didn't. But it's central to understanding the feel of the city. So when you asked me earlier, and I kind of painted this picture about how, how, um, about how difficult things were in San Francisco in 1978, it is also true that there was, you know, for $6, you could take the Ballpark Express at Candlestick Park and spend a day watching, you know, a pretty good baseball team. And if it was the daytime, it was sunny and nice. So it was, had a lot to offer there as well. And one last quick note about the Giants. One thing that I got reading your book, you know, I, I was a kid growing up on the East Coast and I had only been to San Francisco once as like a little, little kid. And uh, I always imagined Candlestick Park as this, you know, really glamorous, gorgeous place watching the occasional Giants game or 49ers game on TV. And you described the Giants home field, Candlestick Park, as kind of a dump, if I can say so. Well, as my, some of my old Giants fan friends say, it was a dump, but it was our dump. <laughs> and the thing about Candlestick Park was that it was really two ballparks. Yeah. If you went there in a day game, particularly if you're watching a 49er game in January, where it's, you know, because they were always in the playoffs in the 80s, where, um, where it's freezing in the rest of the country, it's beautiful. Right. If you went there right. for a day game, you sat in the upper deck, it was sunny, it was nice. It was always hard to get to. It was always in a remote part of the southeast corner of the city where if you didn't have a car, you know, the local um, transit authority wasn't great at getting you there. But it was beautiful. The food was always pretty terrible. But around the sixth inning, depending on where you were sitting, if your seat suddenly got in the shade, it could drop 15 degrees in 20 minutes, in one half of an inning. And if you went there at night for a night game, July, August, it didn't matter. I would dress for night games at Candlestick Park the way I would dress to visit my grandparents in New York in December over winter break. It was just that cold. And it made it unpleasant for fans. It meant that the best seats were the upper deck, which are the cheaper seats. So it can never be a place where like celebrities go because celebrities don't go to sit in the upper deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you went, let's say you were a politician, you'd be able to really struggle to stay to the end of the game. And it was hard to get to. So, and, and so it was not a pleasant ballpark. Uh, and it also meant the Giants had a hard time attracting free agents. Right. Nobody wants to sign with the Giants and play in Candlestick Park. Now it's the opposite. Everyone wants to play, if you're a pitcher in particular, in Oracle Park. So that's the setting. And that's where San Francisco stands at the beginning of 1978, going into 1978. And you describe throughout the book the remarkable changes that happened over the course of just this one single year in this city's history. So give us the, the, the briefest rundown of what all the, everything that happens in 1978. And a lot happens in 1978. Let's maybe start just with the, the politics. What happens to George Moscone and, and Harvey Milk? Well, I want to talk about three major political events because it really makes San Francisco what it is today. First, in June, the, the state of California passes Proposition 13, which freezes local property taxes, right? So when people go to a place like San Francisco or LA today, and they say, why are there so many problems in these rich cities? One of the reasons is they can't generate revenue from property taxes. And it was the kind of beginnings of the conservative anti-tax revolution, which came to fruition nationally in 1980, when Ronald Reagan, who had supported that initiative, was elected president. So the frame of kind of limited money for cities and the end of the kind of great society era 
really begins in 78 in California with, with that initiative. Now, politically, in November, uh, several things happened. First, Harvey Milk spends most of the, and Moscone supporting him, most of the summer campaigning against a very uh, anti-gay piece of proposed piece of legislation called Proposition 6, which would have made it, it, which would have made it legal for any school to fire any teacher who was gay or suspected of being gay. Now, this was, would have really taken the livelihoods away from many gay teachers. California is a big state. And, and it was a very, very uh, hard-fought battle. And it ended up being defeated rather resoundingly by the voters of California and the county that went strongest against it. In other words, took the strongest position in favor of gay rights was San Francisco. And, and what that tells us is that by November of 78, Harvey Milk's side was winning. San Francisco was casting its lot with tolerance, led by a tolerant mayor and a tolerant supervisor named Harvey Milk and a tolerant president of the Board of Supervisors who's next in line to become mayor, uh, Dianne Feinstein, who you may have heard of in the last many years as a U.S. senator. Then in November of 1978, everything gets, it, it is the month that changes San Francisco forever. Early in that month, and I'm not even going to talk about Jonestown. We're talking about Milton Moscone now because Jonestown is happening at the same time. And in the book, I really try to capture the tension of these things happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Early that month, Dan White, who um, I didn't talk about much earlier, but Dan White was elected for the supervisor seat that would have, that Barbara Gelato would have run for if he had run, but he decided not to. So it was a conservative Western and Southwestern part of the city, heavily, you know, Irish and Italian, some African-Americans, but not a lot of gay people or hippies moving out to the Excelsior where, where Dan White had been elected. And he ran on a very uh, harsh platform of trying to, you know, push back against the changes occurring in the city. So his, his, um, his slogan had been unite and fight with Dan White, which I suppose he chose because it rhymed and, you know, it's a good slogan if you're running for fourth grade class president. But he also <laughs> used language in his literature like, for example, eradicate malignancies that blight our city. Well, he's talking about this is, this is the way Trump talks about Baltimore, you know, vermin and malignancies. He was talking about people, you know, the, the new people coming in. So and so Dan White is the kind of reactionary on the board. He's the one vote cast against. Uh, the gay rights bill that Harvey Milk passes early in the year in March. But he's not doing well on the board. He's not getting any traction. He's not building coalitions. He doesn't really know how to do politics, and he's not making enough money. So in early November, foolishly, he resigns. And, you know, I can't tell the whole political story, but he resigns, at which point all of the people who were counting on him for his conservative vote, including the police, because he'd been a former policeman and because there was a a bill coming up that would have forced the police to further integrate the police force, which they didn't want to do when they needed his vote for that. And the real estate interest and the business interest come to them and say, look, if you need money, we'll find you a job. You know, we'll find you a consultancy. It's all legal. It's not that you're allowed to do that back then. But, you know, you've got to get back on the board. So Dan White goes, announces he's coming back on the board. In the meantime, uh, George Moscone is looking around for a progressive to appoint to replace Dan White so that he can get his six to five progressive majority on the board of supervisors and begin to really push through the legislation he wants. Well, Dan White decides, um, you know, the only short of it is Dan White goes on Monday, November 27th to discuss this with George Moscone. Everyone knew that Moscone had already, had already made up his mind. And with the support of some of the, the most progressive members of the board of supervisors, like Harvey Milk, and Carol Rose Silver, who represented one district east of Milk in San Francisco at the time, and was a friend. And 
he goes to get a meeting with Moscone. Moscone's you know, secretary says, you know, Dan White's here to see you. And then Moscone did something strange, which is he actually, instead of saying, you know, I mean, and he was about to announce the successor. There was no question this deal was done. Instead of saying, you know, we can't do this right now, or, or I'm sorry, I'm busy. He brings him into the back room, you know, wants to kind of, because Moscone was the kind of politician who thought he could solve everything by, ta- you know, through his charm and by talking to people. And he was a decent guy. And he just wanted to sell this guy, hey, you're in a bad place, but it's going to be all right. And Dan White comes in and shoots him. And then he goes down the hall and on the belief, which is not exactly true, that Milk had dissuaded Moscone from reappointing him, he shoots and kills Harvey Milk also. And that's November 27th. By the end of that day, you know, Diane Feinstein famously announces it to the, uh, the gathered press and others at, at City Hall, becomes acting mayor. And to her credit, keeps the diverse team that Moscone had assembled and never, as she was mayor through 1987, never went back to running the city with, you know, old white guys the way it always had been, but moved away from Moscone's more, more kind of progressive and radical ideas about the economy. And that was the politics. And that's why this year is so seminal for understanding San Francisco today, from the political perspective. And it's also crucial, as you describe in the book, from a cultural perspective. And you talk a bit, or you talked a bit earlier about uh, how the 78 Giants, despite ending up in uh, third place, how they became fan favorites. But what else was going on in the city culturally in 1978? You briefly mentioned Jonestown. Um, what was Jonestown's connection to New York, or excuse me, to San Francisco? And why is it this year that punk rock really takes off in the city in, uh, in, in this particular uh, time period? Well, I will start by, by speaking about Jonestown a little bit. Jonestown is deeply misunderstood in the public consciousness. To the extent people know about it at all today, they know the expression drinking the Kool-Aid. And, and which is meant to say, don't just you know, go down and blindly follow somebody. He or she is really drinking the Kool-Aid on that one. But that, that, that expression is kind of offensive if you know the real story of Jonestown. First of all, Jim Jones, uh, the leader of the Jonestown, of, of the People's Temple, he didn't, sir, he didn't mix the poison with Kool-Aid, he mixed it with flavor aid because he was cheap and it just wanted to steal more money from those mostly poor members of the church. Um, and secondly, it wasn't a suicide. He, these people who, who lost their lives down there were forced at gunpoint to drink this, this, this concoction. They knew what was happening. So it was, it was, I think of it as a mass murder rather than a suicide. But, but Jim Jones was a, and, and when Jim Jones was a minister from the middle of the country, from Indiana, and who had very radical views about civil rights. I mean, in the 1950s and early 60s, he's out there saying, hey, you know, we should treat black people equally. And he's acting on it. So it's just, you know, if we want to be honest about Jim Jones, he was, up until a point, seems to be doing some things right and concealing a lot of the bad things he was doing. There was not an awareness of it. Um, gradually, he builds his temple. He can't leave, stay in the Midwest because it's just not, you know, it's just not okay there. He comes to a town in Northern California, north of the city called Ukiah, and builds his, his kind of commune and cult there, and then moves it to San Francisco to um, what was then the Western Edition. Now I think they call it Lower Pacific Heights, but in my mind, it's still the Western Edition. And he puts a church on Geary and Snyder, and for years that church was still there. finally fell in the 89 earthquake. And there he builds this congregation, and he becomes very influential in city politics, because as, as someone told me, which is important to understand, there were a lot of kind of strange people doing strange but positive things in San Francisco at that time, right? So there was Delancey Street, which is kind of a drug rehab program that tried to help people. There were other churches with kind of slightly erratic ministers that were still doing, you know, some pretty good things. But there was a lot. There was um, Cecil Williams, who was, who was not, uh, who was a very accomplished person, but he was also part of the culture at that time. So 
there was a lot going on. And Jim Jones was just one more radical minister. It was odd that he was white because he was working with mostly black uh, congregation. But, you know, he wasn't. It's not obvious in 1975 or 76 that Jim Jones is going to start doing this crazy stuff. Right. Had their probes been stronger, they might have known that. But but nobody was really looking that hard. Uh, the lieutenant governor of California was, uh, frankly, an apologist for Jim Jones, who tried to persuade Moscone to go to Jonestown and visit and see how great it was. And Moscone kept saying no, because he already knew that something was up. So, but by early 78, the, the jig is kind of up in Jonestown. There are more people trying to get the word out that there are problems. One woman, uh, and I talked about in the book, comes to California with an affidavit that she brings to her attorney that says, you know, these are all the things going wrong. I am very worried that there will be a mass suicide in Jonestown. And, and the, uh, and the uh, attorney, you know, submits this to Congress. Uh, the, they, the reporters then from the Chronicle, the local papers, see it. They go to speak to the Jonestown attorney, the attorney for Jonestown, who says this is total BS. But he doesn't use the word BS, he uses the word for which that stands. And, you know, he was wrong. I mean, this woman was right, and she was trying to warn people, but, but it didn't. You know, she couldn't get the warnings across. By November, by October, November, there are enough concerns from people in San Francisco and near San Francisco who are saying, you know, my cousin, I haven't heard from my cousin in six months, or I got a weird message that my brother is very scared down there. What's going on? That a congressman named Leo Ryan, who represented the district just south of San Francisco, after getting reelected, you know, in the November election of 78, he was a Democrat. He goes down and he tries to figure out what's going on. And that's where the story accelerates. He ends up finding out what's going on. And and because of that, gets assassinated when he tries to leave. And then Jones, realizing he's now ordered the killing of a member of the, you know, of the House of Representatives and the United States government is not going to look kindly on that, then pursues the, you know, the worst possible choice and, and, and kills all of his followers. Um, and, 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 but this, importantly, this happened 10 days before Moscone and Milk were assassinated. So it's all happening so fast in San Francisco. And it leaves this feeling of, oh my goodness, how are we going to survive? And one of the things I argue in the book is that if in December of 15th, the Giants had left, we have a very different San Francisco today because it doesn't really survive like that. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happened because the Giants had such a good season. And so that, that third strike, you know, you're out, didn't, didn't occur. And also Mayor Feinstein and really the, you know, Diane Feinstein has been a public official since 1969, you know, with only a couple of years off in between uh, the Senate and, and being mayor. And that was probably her, maybe her finest moment was holding the city together. Uh, and someone uniquely positioned to do that because she could really reach all San Francisco uh, after the assassination. We've talked a couple times about baseball being sort of the background music to uh, to American history and to San Francisco's history, certainly in, in a lot of ways in this time period. But in the book, music is also the background music yeah. to San Francisco. So why is why are the late 70s generally and 1978 specifically a crucial year for West Coast punk music? And why is San Francisco an epicenter of that uh, musical movement? San Francisco is an epicenter, but punk in San Francisco is also different than other cities. And here's what, what, what tells you a lot about San Francisco. So, um, you know, punk was a, and I've spent a lot of time on this in the book, it was a reaction to the kind of, hippie hegemony of youth culture, right? Where by 1977, 78, if you're a kid, and even if you're like a you know, 13, 14 year old, you know, the teacher, the bus driver, the, the after school counselor, the arts and crafts person are all hippies. And, and, it's, it's that, and that 
movement which still dominates popular culture because again think of the demographic numbers of baby boomers versus gen xers right so these are gen xers just coming into their teenage years and punk is among other things a rebellion against the hippie movement but in san francisco it takes an explicitly political bent in some interesting ways so the most well-known band of the time in san francisco was the, the dead kennedys which who performed there for reformed in 78 and of course the dead kennedys is it's hard to capture just how offensive that name was in 1978 partially because it offended everyone progressives liked the kennedys they liked jack kennedy they liked bobby kennedy uh baby boomers uh the kennedys were this symbol and here they were kind of mocking them and then even more conservatives in a city like San Francisco, who tended to skew Catholic, the Kennedys were a symbol to them. So this was offensive to absolutely everybody. But their music was really, I think, very good, but also very political in very interesting ways. So they write songs, a couple of their songs. Um, one is Nazi Punk's F Off, which is a uh, statement about growing bigotry and, and, and racism and anti-Semitism within the punk movement, right? But they also write a song called California Uberalis, which is about a fascist takeover of California, led not by some right-wing politician, but by Jerry Brown. I'm your president, Jerry Brown. My aura smiles. It never frowns. And capturing that, that, that tension. But then these punk bands start doing other things. So in the spring, they do a fundraiser to raise money for striking coal miners in Appalachia, right? No one is doing – in CBGBs, no one's holding that fundraiser. At you know, other punk clubs in L.A. or Boston or Washington, no one's holding that fundraiser. But the San Francisco punks are getting very interested and involved in politics. I talked about Proposition 6 earlier, but there's no city in America, not a major city in America, where 1978, where a, an elected official would go to a punk club with the most prominent punk bands in the city to do a fundraiser to stop an anti-gay initiative. But that was happening in San Francisco. So punk is this, it's this new and kind of high energy, exciting musical movement that brings in politics, although in a way that, that the, the people at the time, like the punks at the time, were not saying we're here to make progressive political change. They were there you know, to be kind of loud, angry, radical, fun, cutting edge, but it was very deeply political also as well. So that's why I wanted to bring punk into the story too. You described 1978 as the year that really set San Francisco on the course to become the city that it is today. And you've talked a little bit about that, but I'm wondering if you can expand on why that's the case. And I'm also wondering if you see San Francisco as standing at yet another crossroads today as we talk in early November of 2019, especially considering the election that just happened in that city. Well, the election in that city, to me, was, was fascinating. It captures what happens in San Francisco, right? So on the one hand... London Breed, who was a mayor who was exactly cut from the Feinstein cloth in her policies, not in her personal story, right? But in her policies, you know, tolerant, liberal on social issues, reasonably pro-business and pro-real estate, is reelected without opposition to a full term. Interestingly, Breed, like Feinstein, got into office when, um, when, a, uh, her, when the incumbent died, uh, although Ed Lee was, wasn't assassinated. At the same time, Chesa Bodine, who was a radical, the, the son of members of the Weather Underground, is elected district attorney on a platform that really is, you know, talks a lot more about stopping mass incarceration than fighting crime. So you see the hybrid still exists. Yeah. And I, that hybrid was crafted by Diane Feinstein. After the events of November 1978, 
that the, the question of how does this city survive was a real question. How do we survive? How do we keep a city together that has suffered so much and had so much division? And the way Dianne Feinstein led the city was that she said, we are not we are, we are going to embrace the diversity and the tolerance. Now, I know there are people on the left in San Francisco who will always see Dianne Feinstein as you know, a right-wing mayor. And certainly in the punk movement, she was very anti-punk in, 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 I thought, ways that were completely unnecessary and really springing from her kind of general prudishness and her belief that this was bad for tourism and, and, and business, although it's probably good for tourism to have a fun punk scene in San Francisco. But, but the tolerance was there. She's not, she's not, she never, ever talks about, you know, we're going to crack down on things that blight our city, refers to people as malignancy, you know, tries to tell cops it's okay to beat up gay people like, like had been the case until Moscone became mayor. At the same time, she also embraces a pro-development, pro-business vision for the city. That's why you can have a city today where rents are super high and business is booming and kind of tech bros and, you know, old hippies have to share the city. And tech bros and, you know, gay activists who survived the AIDS plague and are now in their 70s live side by side. That's the San Francisco of today. That came out of San Francisco of 78. If it had gone a different way, if Moscone had stayed mayor, you know, we would have a very, very different city. We might have very different, you know, laws in place about development, about, you know, we might have built much more housing for homeless people over the years. But, and, and had uh, Feinstein not adapted Moscone's views on tolerance, the city really would eventually have been torn apart. So that's how I see the relationship. Is it a crossroads today? I think San Francisco is more in the middle of a transition today. Mm-hmm. And part of the, you know, I know this book is about 78. It's not a prescription for the future, but there's a lot of questions San Francisco has to ask itself. And many of this goes back to the question that Harvey Milk and George Moscone were posing in the mid 70s, which is, what is the city for? What are we trying to do here? And I don't think most San Franciscans would agree it's just for, you know, tech people and real estate people. But if we're not careful, it could end up moving even further in that direction. And maybe you just answered this question, but I like to ask my guests towards the end of my interviews, what one takeaway is that you hope people come away with from their book? If they're thinking back on the book that you've written, maybe a year or so after they read it, what do you hope that they remember about it? I hope that they remember a few things. One is that if they're not, if there's somebody, you know, this is a book that, frankly, you could read if you were a student of urban politics living in Chicago or New York and never having been to San Francisco. Uh, because there's a lot of it. I mean, I, like we started this interview on political scientists, and you can take you know the political scientists the, out of the seventh floor of the International Affairs Building, but you can't take you know the the political science, whatever it is. Um, so, so this is a city where, in addition to the place where everyone likes to go because the food is great and it's near Sonoma and you know uh, Twitter's headquartered there or something, where the politics was important and really mattered. San Francisco has a rich political history that goes beyond what I've talked about, but also the things that the right makes fun of it for, you know, plastic bag bans, all of which are good ideas. So I, I would like people to take away an understanding of San Francisco, both how it got to be the way it is, but that it's also a city worth, worth studying. Now, the other thing, you know, I was on a panel out there and one of my colleagues said, you know, who had, who had worked with Moscone said, you know, this, we know that we can, that, that has bad as things get, we can get through it. But I think, I mean, that's a little more Pollyannish than I am because I don't, in speaking of the national scene, I don't necessarily uh, believe that. But I think what I would like people to take away, I, mean, I don't want to make a, a kind of political moral lesson, but just that 
at any one time and place, there's a lot more going on than what you might see. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, and San Francisco 78 is certainly one of those times, even the people who, who understand the story of the assassination, there's a lot more going on. And if you think about things holistically, you get a better understanding of what that is. That was one of my takeaways was, was that, you know, obviously the story of Harvey Milk is a crucial one and one that every student of American history should know, but kind of to get at what you're saying, that it's the story of George Moscone that also has a crucial impact on the course that that city takes. That was one of the things that I know I'm going to take away from the book. Yeah, and for me, writing the book, I think that would be the single biggest thing that I took away was recentering George Moscone in San Francisco history. Yeah. And, and to really, what, what an intriguing figure he was because he, embraced, he was such a product of the old San Francisco, yet he embraced the new. And, and that is something that we can think about. George Moscone could just as easily have been threatened by what he saw in the new San Francisco. Yeah. George Moscone could have just as easily have been someone who, after graduating from law school at Hastings, simply retreated to a, a law firm, got a place in Pacific Heights, and made a bunch of money. But he didn't. And he really tried to lead a different kind of life. And that's instructive, too, that we shouldn't be threatened by the new. And San Francisco is a place now where the new that is threatening, people are threatened by the new. It's a very different new. But there is this, it, there's some, sometimes when it feels very similar, people are saying, all these new people coming in and changing our city. But in this case, it's tech people with money, not, you know, hippies and gays and, and Latinos or something. So before I let you go, I have to ask one more question about baseball, because the last time we recorded a podcast for this interview, it was opening day of the 2019 baseball season. And now uh, we're about a week and a half or so removed from uh, game seven of the World Series. And actually, it would have been some nice symmetry if we'd been able to record on the original day we had scheduled, um, which would have been the day of the last day of the World Series. But nonetheless, the, the 2019 season is just behind us. So what's your quick assessment of 2019 in Giants baseball and in Major League Baseball more broadly? Well, in Giants baseball, I, it was a lost season for them because they got hot at exactly the wrong time and fooled mm-hmm. themselves into thinking they were going to make a playoff run. And therefore, instead of getting some decent prospects back for Bumgarner and Will Smith, they're going to get some sandwich round draft picks. Yeah. So that was a mistake for the Giants. But it was also a season where Zaidi, I suspect, internally has to do a lot of work to just persuade people what bad shape this team was in. And that building, you know, Crawford, Posey, and Bumgarner are no longer frontline stars. They're useful players for the right team, but they're no longer frontline stars. So my hope is that they begin the rebuilding process in earnest, which is difficult because they don't have a lot of players who other teams would take or for other teams. I mean, you could see a team taking a flyer on a brand belt, but they're not going to give them a top prospect for them. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm not, I don't, I mean, it was, it's a fun year. It's always a fun year with the Giants, especially now they play at Oracle Park, but it wasn't, you know, a super positive year. For baseball in general, you know, I'm, I'm, when it comes to both San Francisco and to baseball, I'm not one of these people who just thinks the sky is falling. So I try to be positive about, about both those things. But there are, uh, you know, it, it was a seven-game World Series, which until the last three innings of the seventh game just wasn't that interesting. You know, and then it got kind of fun and interesting. You could second-guess A.J. Hinch's pitching. You know, there's, there's two things that really strike me. One is that the kind of three-true-outcome approach, home runs, walks, and, and uh, strikeouts, which now dominates baseball, is strategically the best approach, but it is not the funnest product to put on the field. And there's a tension there. So baseball has to find a way to address that. And the second thing is, is that watching playoff baseball is when the team carries 13 pitchers, not only isn't fun, but I think it hurts the team. I mean, the Yankees 
lost that ALCS because they carried 13 pitchers. And when Edwin Encarnacion was probably slightly hurt and couldn't, you know, couldn't even get so much as a dribbler, you know, between the third base foul line and, you know, for a single somewhere, they had no left-handed bat to put a, uh, to put in a lineup instead of him. And that really hurt them. So these are, you know, every baseball season is better than the alternative, but I don't think of 2019 as one of the, you know, the great memorable ones. Yeah. And my final question for you, and this will seem kind of a silly one since you put out two books in the last, what, 18 months or so, but I, I got to ask you, uh, what are you working on next? Do you have any projects that you have sort yeah. of, uh, that you're thinking of? I have, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pretty far down the road on a book about the Giants during the Bob Lurie era, which is 1976 to 1992. And that's really kind of taking a, a largely forgotten period in Giants history and, and both talking about it from the baseball angle because there's a lot of fun teams and fun years, but also putting the context of, of San Francisco and baseball. And then I'm working at the very earlier stages on a biography of George Moscone, who, I, like I said, I'm starting writing this book, realizing what a hugely important figure he is to San Francisco history and not one, no one's really written a book about him. So that's, that's my longer term project. Lincoln Mitchell is a writer, a political scientist, and an adjunct associate professor at Columbia University. His new book, San Francisco Year Zero, is just out with Rutgers University Press and is a fantastic read. Thank you so much for joining me again on the podcast, Lincoln. Thanks. It was an absolute pleasure.